follow along in the bulletin, the screen, or your Bibles, I read from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. I'll be reading from the NIV as appears in the bulletin. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of all your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. May be seated. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan, for reading that passage for us. And let's go to our great God in prayer as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning mindful that you are the Lord over the universe and God over all creation. And Father, we recognize that you have made yourself known to us in a trinity, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, we have access to you because of the marvelous work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that came to this earth and lived a perfectly sinless life as the one and only God-man. And Father, we are grateful that you condescended your love, bringing your eternal existence into time and space so that we could have a relationship with you, a relationship that you initiate through your son, Jesus. And Father, we also are grateful that you have given us your Holy Spirit, the comforter that is also a part of this triune God that guides us and directs us to follow you in all our ways. Father, this morning as I pray before this passage, I ask that you would guide us to see that you are supreme in every sphere of this universe. Father, I pray that we would see the supremacy of Christ over all creation, that there is nothing that exists outside the authority of you. Father, I also pray that we would see your supremacy in the church. That in fact, you are the reason that we are here this morning because you sent your son to save us and to add us into your family. And Father, I pray as well that we would see your supremacy over our sin, as our sin is always present and always lurking in our hearts, reminding us of our need for a Savior. So Father, I pray that in all these areas we would be drawn to you, that you would guide us according to your spirit and your truth. God, I also want to pray this morning for one of our families that is away from us just now as they are serving you, I pray for the Sorokas. And I ask that you would be with Yuri and Nadia and Angie as they have made their way back into Ukraine this morning. And Father, I pray that you would give them safety for the mission that you have called them to. I pray that you would give them boldness 
and courage amid conflict and difficulty. And I pray that you would help them to be the hands and feet of Christ as they minister the hope of the gospel alongside their home church in that country. Father, I also want to pray for the Folsom family as they have completed their missionary training. And I ask that you would just strengthen their hands for the work that is ahead of them. Help them as they have a couple weeks to rest and then prepare for moving overseas. And Father, I pray that you would go before all the details that you've been preparing for a long time, that you would help them get visas as they depend on immigration paperwork. I also pray that you would help them with their language learning that they're going to be approaching later this summer. And I just ask that in every way you would help them as they deploy for your mission and your cause and that you would make your name known and that you would make your name greater through the work of the Folsoms and through the work of the Sorokas. Now, Father, I ask your blessing over our time this morning as we put ourselves under the authority of your word, and we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as we look in Colossians chapter 1, I feel woefully unprepared, because this is one of the most significant passages on the deity of Jesus Christ that is in all the Bible. And there are books that have been written about this doctrine. There are long books that have been written about this chapter. So this morning, my goal is to point us to the supremacy of Christ over all things and hopefully to whet your appetite for more. Because really, your relationship with Christ should not be dependent merely on what you hear out of the pulpit, but your relationship with Christ should be driven by a hunger for truth and righteousness that you would be invested and investigating the Word of God and its claims, and that you would be laying your life bare before what God says about himself and what he has said about you. This weekend, we are celebrating Memorial Day, and there are all kinds of things that surround Memorial Day. Some are serious as we have different celebrations for veterans who have served us well and have protected the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans. Others are less serious as we have picnics and barbecues and we just enjoy hanging out with one another. And for a lot of people, it's simply the mark of the beginning of summer. And it's their season for traveling and getting away and getting their mind off of their normal school year kinds of responsibilities. Well, as I've been driving around town since last week and looking at all the crosses that are out around Milton, that are put out every time for Memorial Day. It has reminded me in a sense of what I want to accomplish this morning in this message. And that is I want to point us to Christ. Those crosses along the sidewalks remind families of loved ones that have passed away in conflict. And they remind us of the price of freedom, that it comes at the cost of life. And those crosses, by God's common grace, also point us to Jesus himself. Isn't it interesting that even in our secular age, in a society that rejects God and the lordship of Christ, we still use crosses. And those crosses are memorials to show us that there is something larger than ourselves, something that points beyond us. And those crosses remind us that we can know God and we know him through Jesus. 
As we look in Colossians chapter 1, I wanted to take us here as Jerry has been touring through the book of Genesis and begin in the beginning section of Genesis where we have the creation and the account of the fall. And I wanted to take us to the New Testament to remind us that Jesus Christ is not simply in the New Testament, but he is in all of Scripture. And as we have seen God create people, it said that he created them in his own image. And we noticed that when he did that, he said, he being God said, we will create human beings in our image, the second person plural pronoun. That's a significant doctrinal statement that God the Father was not acting alone, but he was acting in the unity of the Trinity with his Son and with his Spirit, who are all eternally existent and equal as God. This is a doctrine that is incredibly hard to get our minds wrapped around because we cannot think of something being three in one unless we start delving into heresies as we try our best to explain it. For example, we sometimes will think of the Trinity by saying, well, it's like a man who is a husband, who's a father, and who is an employee. But really, that delves not into a good analogy of the Trinity, but uh, breaks down into something called modalism, where we see one person acting in three different ways. As we see God in creation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all active as one, bringing about his designed and intended purposes for the people and the universe that he decided to create. This is an extremely important doctrine for us to understand, and especially as it relates to Jesus Christ. We call ourselves Christian because we follow Jesus. And it's important for us from time to time to remind ourselves who Christ is and what he has accomplished. On a weekend like Memorial Day, when patriotism is in the air, red, white, and blue is around. I'm even wearing my red trousers today for those who like those, for the red, white, and blue. But it's easy for us to get sucked into cultural issues and to think that if we could simply somehow preserve a golden era of America, that we would somehow better perpetuate Christianity. But I would argue that perhaps that can become a form of idolatry that gets in the way of Christianity. Not that America is bad. Don't hear me say that. I love America. And having lived overseas, I greatly appreciate the values that we have in America. But our cultural issues have to be secondary to something more primary. And that which is primary is Jesus. And that's what Paul was writing about in the book of Colossians. So as we look here in Colossians chapter 1, I'm sort of diving into the middle of this chapter where Paul has already introduced himself and offered an incredible prayer for the believers that God has gathered around himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul concludes his prayer in verses 13 and 14, he's reminding the Colossian Christians of what they have been saved from, that he has rescued them from darkness. He has rescued them from sin and given them the light of the gospel and the complete forgiveness of their sins. And then beginning in verse 15, where our passage picks up this morning, he shows that this is all possible because of the supremacy of Christ 
over all things, the supremacy of Christ over all things. As Paul lays out his argument, he wants the Colossians to remember that Jesus has to be preeminent above everything. And why would he do that? Well, look over for just a moment in chapter 2, verse number 8, where it says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. You see, in Colossae, there were competing philosophies and competing religions. And they were all looking to be the dominant view held by most people. Well, as the gospel came to Colossae, it challenged those other views, because it was a mutually exclusive view. It was not one of pluralism that said, here's another alternative or another possible idea or a, a different way of understanding things. The gospel was coming to say Jesus is Lord and Jesus reigns supreme. That means all competitors are not actually competitors. They lose at the feet of Jesus. Yet there were those who had come into the church, perhaps some professing faith in Christ, others still curious and searching, but they were wondering about the claims of Gnosticism in their society. Gnosticism is a fancy word that basically describes a sect at that time that was teaching that knowledge was what was most important. And then, in fact, those things that existed in the realm of knowledge, sort of in the non-material realm, were the only things that mattered, and they were the only things that were good. Everything physical was evil, and those things which had tangible expression were wrong. Well, with that kind of a view, the Gnostics did not like the doctrine of Jesus Christ being the incarnate Son of God. Because how could a perfect God who existed in spirit lower himself into the form of a human and take on flesh? Because in the Gnostic view, that would conflate a good God with an evil body, and that would rule him out that he could not possibly be God. This was a teaching that was very popular at this time among the Romans. It was also popular later through the Greeks, through people like Plato and his dualism. And believe it or not, it's also something that still prevails today. We try to exist in this realm of knowledge. We live in an information economy with knowledge workers. And we sometimes, whether we mean to or not, try to separate knowledge from existence. And in doing so, we try to say that knowledge is good. Knowledge will lead to the betterment of society. Knowledge will make things good that are broken. And we have all these ideals. And if you listen to some of the philosophy that comes out of Silicon Valley in particular, it's mind-boggling how parallel it is to Gnosticism. And yet there's this sense that those things that are physical, that's where the breakdown happens. That's where the problems occur. And yet in the incarnation of God through his son, Jesus Christ, we see that there is the perfection of God and man in the work of Jesus. And this good God 
came into the world to live a perfect life amid broken people where sin was everywhere, but he did this so that he could make us right with God, not condemning us, but forgiving us. So look at verse number 15 where Paul begins his argument against Gnosticism by saying Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation. There is nothing that exists apart from, from Christ. In fact, Christ is the representation of God. Look in 15, it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. As Jesus is demonstrated or asserted to be supreme over creation, it's important to note that Paul says he reveals the very image of God. Through the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal, invisible God makes himself temporal and visible for human beings. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reveals God's image perfectly. He's not a monster and he's not a mutant, but he is instead the Son of God in the form of a man. Jesus is the same in essence and being as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The incarnation does not make Jesus God, just like it doesn't cancel him from being God, as the Gnostics argued. But Paul simply says here that the Son is the image of God. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus Christ. Jesus has always been God from all eternity, and the incarnation simply made it possible for human beings to see God in human form. Another way of saying this is that Jesus condescended the love of God to show sinful human beings the holiness of God's glory. I use the word condescended intentionally because a perfect God had to lower himself to dwell among sinful people. And yet he did that not merely to judge us. We were already under condemnation because of our sin, but he did that to show us the way of forgiveness through his life, death, and resurrection. Paul asserts that Jesus is in the very image of God, but human beings, if you remember from Genesis, what does it say about us? Genesis says that human beings are made in the image of God. It doesn't say we are the image of God. It says we are made in the image of God, and the difference is very important. Being the image of God means that Jesus is fully God from eternity past, with no distinction in terms of his substance, his essence, or his being from the Father or the Holy Spirit. Human beings, on the other hand, are created in the image of God. That means we are finite creatures, not gods. We are not little gods among other little gods, and Jesus is not a little god who has been created. But instead, it says in verse 9 of chapter 2 that I read a moment ago, that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. John echoes the same point in the passage that Dan read for us at the beginning of our service this morning, when he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we see God. Perhaps this is why so many people have a problem with Jesus. And they'll say, well, maybe Jesus existed, maybe he didn't. Most honest people, even among skeptics, will say, well, he was a historical figure. He was just a Jewish rabbi that traveled around at that time, and he was killed like so many other religious zealots. And that is the end of that. Yet that is not how the scriptures portray Christ at all. He was far more than a Jewish rabbi. He was the son of God and made flesh. He was fully God and fully man. This is another difficult doctrine for us to understand and to use the big term, the hypostatic union of Jesus, of how one person could have two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. But Jesus does, and we don't have to reconcile and compare it to ourselves because you're not divine. There is no spark of divinity in any of us. We are simply humans who are under the curse of sin who need a rescue from God. And God has designed that rescue to come through Jesus Christ himself by making himself known to us. The Gnostic heresy that I mentioned in the introduction said that Jesus was not God. They did believe that he was some sort of angelic spirit that had been made by God, but they denied the deity of Jesus. The Apostle Paul here, to the contrary of the Gnostics or any who would diminish Jesus, asserts that he is who he says that he is. Well, you may say the Gnostic heresy. Nathan, I've never heard of Gnosticism. The word Gnostic, this doesn't make sense. That's first century. We live in the 21st century. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because like the Gnostics, the Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teach a very similar view of Jesus. They say that God or Jesus is God the Father's firstborn spirit child in heaven. That's not what the Bible is saying here. The Bible is saying that Jesus, the Son, is the image of God and that he exists from the beginning. The Mormons also teach that Lucifer, commonly called Satan, is a spirit brother of Jesus. In other words, they were both created, they're both equal, they just had different paths or outcomes. But the Bible does not say that at all. The Bible says Jesus created all things, including fallen angels such as Satan, demonstrating that Jesus is the Lord over all creation, including Satan. Satan is not the equal opposite of Jesus. Most of us who grew up watching cartoons remember images of the little white angel on one shoulder and the black or the red angel on the other shoulder. And there was this constant tug of war between do the good thing with the white angel and do the naughty thing with the black or the red angel. But that is not how the scriptures portray Jesus and Lucifer. They are not equal opposites. Jesus is exalted supreme above all, even above Satan. So though the Mormons may teach that they are spirit brothers, that could not be further from the truth. That is wrong. The Mormons also say that Jesus' sacrifice cannot cleanse us from all sins. 
But the point of this passage is that Jesus does forgive us from all of our sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. The Mormons finally say that Jesus is simply one of many million other gods and that you and I are among those other gods. But the Bible says Jesus alone is God. He is the image of God. It's we who are made in the image of God to look like God, to have intelligence like God, to have a will like God, to have emotions that reflect God, but we are not equal with God in any way. Paul here asserts the supremacy of Jesus in creation because he is God. He also says in verse 15 that Jesus ranks the highest in creation. You may have already been wondering, what does this mean when it says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation? Does that somehow imply that Jesus came after creation, that he was brought about just before Adam? And it does not say, imply that at all. Firstborn over creation does not suggest that Jesus is a created being. Instead, firstborn simply means that Jesus ranks higher in priority than any subsequent born. Higher in priority. The firstborn in an Old Testament sense is someone who held the position of honor in the family. This means that Jesus has a special relationship with the Father and that he is the primary heir of all that the Father gives him. Notice in Hebrews chapter 1, the author there says something very similar. He says this, But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided for the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The author of Hebrews is saying exactly the same thing on this point. Not that Jesus was born after the fact of creation, but he's saying that Jesus is prior, has priority over all creation, that he ranks higher than anything in creation because he is the creator. And he is, in fact, it said in Hebrews, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being and sustaining all things by his powerful word. God the Father exalts his son Jesus over all things that have been created. Nothing in creation equals or surpasses the incarnate Son of God. Instead, all things are created and are subordinate to Jesus. Jesus created all things, he is before all things, and he holds all things together, Paul says in this passage. In fact, all things depend on Jesus for their existence and their continuation. So this afternoon, as you drive out of this place and you see those crosses along the sidewalk, certainly think about those who laid down their lives for our freedoms and pray rejoicing that you are in a country where we are free to gather. But I would also challenge you to pray and say, God, thank you that in your infinite wisdom and worth, that you chose to make yourself known to poor, humble, sinful people, including me. 
and use that cross as an occasion, not simply for Memorial Day, but use those crosses as an occasion to worship the one true God who exists over everyone and everything, who reveals the image of God and who ranks higher than you, higher than me, higher than anyone. And you also, in doing that, will bring honor to God and his name. Well, there are other heresies that abound on this phrase and this verse, and this is why I say books have been written, and I don't have time to get into them all this morning. But in the fourth century AD, there were a group of, a, a group that splintered off of Christianity called the Arians, and they taught that Jesus was the first created being, and that everything after Jesus was created came to be. They were refuted, and there were church councils held in order to put their teaching to bay. And they were specifically refuted in the Nicene Creed. When the Nicenes asserted that Jesus is the same in substance and essence of the Father, that Jesus is God of very God. And then there was further clarification brought about at the Council of Constantinople when they said that the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are all equal and that there was no order of their existence. Well, again, you might say the Arians, who are they, and the fourth century, come on. This is the 21st century. But like the Arians centuries ago, the Jehovah's Witnesses today teach the same thing, that Jesus is a created being begotten by God, and he's less than divine. Christians, however, believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the same in substance and essence as the Father and the Son. And without this core belief, the gospel becomes meaningless. Because if Jesus is not God, he's not capable of saving sinners. Jesus is who he says he is, and Paul declares it, and we should believe it, just as he implored the Colossians to believe it. If that doesn't convince enough, the next thing that Paul says, beginning in verse 16, is that Jesus exists prior to creation. So he punctuates it by saying, yes, Jesus ranks higher than everything external to himself, but you also have to know that Jesus was there when all things external to himself were being made. Verse 16 says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did you notice a phrase that kept popping up there? All things. That Jesus is over all things. That there is nothing equal to or above Jesus. Because he was there at the beginning, and he is holding all things together. I don't want to make this an English lesson or a grammar lesson for those of you who cringed at grammar like others of you cringed at math, but prepositions are important. And this passage has at least five prepositions as it's describing Jesus. It's saying in him, through him, for him, before him, prior to him. All these things are saying something about the character and work of Christ, the Son of God. In him is simply showing us that he is the source of creation, that creation emanated from Jesus as well as the Father and the Spirit. 
Remember I referred back to Genesis where it said, let us create man in our image. God, the triune, Father, Son, and Spirit created people at the beginning and Jesus was there. Through him means that Jesus is the agent of creation, that he was the one architecting and designing and working out the creation of this universe. For him means that Jesus was the purpose of creation, that he would bring all things to himself and for his own glory. And before him, in verse number 17, means that Jesus is the beginning of creation, that he existed from eternity past. And in him, again, that Jesus is the sustainer of creation. He's holding all things together. Jesus existed with God the Father the Holy, and the Holy Spirit before any of us existed or before any of our forefathers existed. John wrote this in chapter one, again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Jesus existed prior to creation, during creation, and he exists for all eternity. He is the uncreated, co-eternal, and the same substance and essence as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. John said again, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So as we look at Jesus, he's not simply a sufferer who came and died, but Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. So imagine that when you think of Jesus, that he was not simply a moral teacher, he was not simply a good person, but he was the one who created the world in which he walked. He was the one who created people, including sinners like us. And he was the one who gave his life so that we could have the pardon of our sins. That's mind-boggling. Now, some, especially skeptics, might say, yeah, I hear that, but that just doesn't make sense. I mean, if he was the God of the universe and if he was supreme over everything, why do it that way? Why not do it some other way? And then normally there's a suggestion of what that other way could be. But that's not our right or role to have that perspective on it because we are created, not the creator. God designed things the way he did for his own purposes and his own glory. The very fact that we have intelligence and can ask such questions reveal that we reflect the image of God, but it does not reveal that we have the mind of God. Our response to a passage like this is to submit to Christ in all of his authority and to accept him on his own terms rather than writing our own terms and creating our own Jesus. As you share the gospel and you talk to people, there are many people who will acknowledge Jesus. In fact, a lot of people acknowledge him simply in the way they curse when they get upset. And I've often found that interesting, that even among the most strident atheists, they'll use the name of Christ in vain. It's almost as if they are hardwired to acknowledge the existence of God and his image at work in them. And yet, in their cursing, they're not claiming Jesus as their Lord. They're trying to reject him as their Lord. That's why they're using his name as a byword. But Paul, in this passage, is reminding the Colossians, and he's reminding us that Jesus is Lord over everything, 
even those who resist him and reject him and deny him. The importance of Jesus' deity and his role in creation cannot be overstated. If Jesus had been created, then he would be doomed under the curse of sin. He'd be no different than you or I. If Jesus had been one spirit among many, then he would be subject to the rulers and authorities. You see, the Gnostics were into this spiritual world that was supposed to be only good, separate from the material world that was only bad. And Paul, when he says in verse number 16 that Jesus created all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, he was attacking the Gnostics and saying, Jesus is Lord over everything, whether you see it or understand it or not. It's important for us to focus on the doctrine of Christ because the doctrine of Christ is at the center of Christianity. If you take away Jesus, you take away the reason for being a Christian. So we should not water down who Jesus is. We should exalt him for being the Lord of the universe. Even in our worship, we must be careful that we don't make Jesus out to merely be a boyfriend or a casual friend or somehow our romantic lover, which are all overlapping ideas, but look at some of the popular worship songs out there and you might get the wrong idea about Jesus. But Jesus instead is a sovereign Lord who is a roaring lion, the lion of Judah, who came to conquer death and sin and to give us forgiveness of our sins and to make us right with God. Because Jesus is the image of God, supreme over creation and the eternal Son of God, we can trust him for the complete forgiveness of our sins and the eternal salvation of our souls. Non-Christians simply cannot understand this no matter how carefully you try to explain it. I don't say that as someone who's hopeless about trying to share the doctrine of Christ, but reflecting what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, he said this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. To borrow from the words of Isaiah the prophet, the reason there is unbelief is because people cannot see and they cannot hear. They're blind and they're deaf. One of my friends who is an evangelist who travels to different churches sharing the gospel of Christ and imploring people to trust Christ often says in his sermons, if you don't believe Jesus, you can't believe Jesus because you can't see him, you can't hear him, you can't understand him. And then he'll say, except for the work of the Spirit of Christ, who will come and grant vision to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and he will show you Jesus. I've often used the illustration in my sermons about different puzzles that we sometimes have looked at, and these analogies fall short as well. But when I was a teenager growing up in the 90s, there were these 3D puzzles that were presented on flat posters. And the thing is, you were supposed to look into this blurred image, and if you looked the right way, it would seem like there was a 3D image that was coming at you. 
And it was almost stunning when it would appear. Well, I have vision troubles, which is why I'm wearing these trifocal glasses, believe it or not. And I could never see these puzzles. But I took it at other people's word that they were really there. And no matter how hard I stared, if I held it far away from me, if I brought it close to me, if I just let my eyes go sort of numb and just sort of stare blankly, I just could not see it. But most of my friends, including my own family, would say, it's there, it's so obvious, just look at it. And I couldn't. Well, in many ways, the gospel is the same way. And the doctrine of Christ works similarly that Jesus is here all along, Lord over creation, the first and highest ranking in creation. And he is the one overseeing all things from eternity past, but you can't see it unless God shows it to you. So my question would be, do you see Jesus as the son of God? And if you don't, pray and ask him to show himself to you. Ask God to help you understand the role of Jesus in your own life and pray that he would show you his supremacy because Jesus is supreme over creation and then I want you to see that he's supreme over the church. He is supreme over the church. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. As Jesus revealed himself over creation, He's revealing himself over the church. He's the one who initiates the church, it says in verse number 18, as the head over the body, the beginning, and the firstborn among the dead. Again, the word firstborn here is not implying that he was the first to come back from the dead because Jesus in his earthly ministry raised the dead. But it's saying that he is the highest ranking from those um, from among the dead because Jesus conquered death, and sin through his resurrection. Jesus existed before creation, and he existed before the church. And like creation, the church owes its very existence to Christ. Paul identifies Jesus as the head of the body. That is, he initiates and he oversees the church. Without Christ, there cannot be a true church. When Jesus conquered sin and death by the power of his resurrection, He made forgiveness possible for rebellious sinners like us. People who he says in verse number 21 were once alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. What stands out there is that he is saying we were not only away from God as non-believers, but we were separated from God. And in fact, we hated God as his enemies. And this evil was not simply in the bad things that we do, but it was in the bad things that we think, because he says there, in your minds and your evil behavior. Again, he was striking at the Gnostics who were trying to say thoughts are good because thoughts are not material. But Paul is saying your corruption from sin is total and complete. It runs through every part of your being, through your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions. In every way, you're a sinner. And yet, he goes on to say in chapter two, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave all your sins, 
Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus initiates the church because he's supreme over the church. And he gives us the forgiveness of sins because he is the son of God. And through all of this, he receives the supreme honor. Look at the end of verse number 18 again. It says, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. You could translate supremacy the priority. You could translate it the primacy. But the point here is that Jesus is Lord over all. There's nothing that escapes the authority of Jesus Christ. Nothing in creation, nothing in the church, and nothing in our lives. Because Jesus is able to reconcile sinners to himself. That's what is happening in verse 19 and 20 where it says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Again, do you see how Paul is working those things that are immaterial with that which is material through Christ? That Christ is making all things right, whether things above or below, and he is doing that through the real life that he lived and the blood that he shed by dying on the cross. Jesus' reconciling work between hostile sinners and the holy God displays his supremacy in the church and in creation. Only Jesus, through his shed blood, can make peace between sinners and God the Father. The existence of the church itself depends totally on Jesus, and without Jesus, we're wasting our time. The reason we're here is because of Christ. So my last set of questions for you today is, on whom or on what are you depending for the forgiveness of your sins? All of us, whether Christian or non-Christian, struggle with sin and guilt. Every person does because we are all morally corrupt under the fall and under the curse. People try to soften it and call it different things by saying, well, I just make mistakes. Sometimes I just, there are just faults that I have. There are family patterns that I've inherited. I have ticks and glitches. It's just the way that I am. And then there are people that struggle not only with the sin and try to soften it, but they struggle with guilt. And they have issues where they seek outside things to help calm their guilt. Maybe they will take prescription drugs. Maybe they will take illicit drugs. Maybe they will use some other substances. Maybe they will seek it through relationships and through all kinds of other escape mechanisms, but all trying to deal with the guilt that they feel within. In fact, some people search for forgiveness in their careers. They seek to do good and to make, or make a difference in the world, and they think that that will somehow atone for the evil that they feel within, for the bad things that they do against others. Other people sometimes look forgiveness for forgiveness in their children, and they say, well, I just hope to give my children a better life than what I have had. And they'll do everything they can for their kids, but they still do not find forgiveness for themselves. Yet others will strive for forgiveness through the most basic way, and that is through self-righteousness. 
They'll suppress their own sin and guilt by looking down on others and judging everyone else. They'll try to make themselves supreme over creation or over the church in some cases, but they will strive against others by saying, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I don't struggle with that. And they create their own system of what is right and what is wrong, what is condemnable and what is forgivable. Yet only Christians who cling to the Jesus Christ find true forgiveness. It doesn't mean that Christians don't struggle with doubt or fear or anxiety or even confusion, but Christians should ultimately find forgiveness only in Jesus. So I asked on whom or on what are you depending for forgiveness? And to boil it down another way, have you asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins? If you're here this morning and you're a child, I would encourage you, ask your parents today to explain to you the gospel, to explain to you what it is to be a sinner because children, even you sin. And children, I would encourage you to follow Jesus, not because your parents brought you to church, but follow him because you know that you need the forgiveness of your sins. Teenagers, I would challenge you as well to ask Christ to forgive you and make Christ your own, not simply the religion of your parents, but make him a personal relationship with you and persevere in the gospel. Adults, I want to challenge you to believe the gospel and to keep believing the gospel. Persevere in Christ. Don't simply get bored with him and say, yeah, I've heard all that before, but it still doesn't help. It doesn't make sense. I would say cling to Christ, study him, dig into a passage like this. There's so much more that I have not said. You see, in every world religion, they are trying to work their way to God. But in what Paul is teaching in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has made his way to people so that we can have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is supreme over creation. He is supreme over the church, and he is supreme over even your sins. Because once you were alienated, but now verse 22 says, you have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Church, I want to challenge you to persevere in the gospel. Make Christ the center of your life and hold him supreme. Cultural issues will come and go. They will change from time to time. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this time in prayer, we are reminded again of how important it is to believe the right things about you. Father, I ask this morning that if there is any confusion in our hearts or minds about the deity of Jesus, that we would wrestle with it through passages like this, that we would even study it in books of theology, and that we would talk about it with one another in the church. And Father, I pray that you would help us to submit to your supremacy, that we would not see this as totalitarian, that we would not see it as tyrannical, and that we would not see it as hurtful but instead we would submit to the lordship of Christ over creation and the church and our sin, and that we would find relief from accusation. 
that we would find relief from our sin and that we would find the hope that can only come through Jesus. So God, make Jesus sweet to us and lift high the name of Jesus and draw people to yourself. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and amen.